Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. My name is Zach Twomley and I am your host forever. This is the sixth installment of the Franco-Dutch War, so if you haven't listened to the previous five episodes, I would recommend doing so now, or you won't know what's going on. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, then you're very welcome. I hope I don't scare you away right here, right now. And I would encourage you to browse the back catalogue, look up the website, wdfpodcast.com, and browse till your heart's content. So yeah, welcome to the podcast, and I hope you enjoy this episode Everyone else, well, as you know, When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month we are promoting the podcast of the month, which happens to be Eric and Xander's podcast called Reconsider. And it's quite appropriate at the moment that we should be reconsidering everything since, well, let's just face it, 2016 was pretty much a car crash of a year in terms of politics and Everything seems sort of up in the air. Who knows? Is Northern Ireland going to disintegrate? Is the EU going to last to the end of, well, 2017? Will America be great again after all? I'm not going to be political, because these guys do. Check out the Reconsider podcast now. See if you can be challenged, or perhaps even reconsider the way you look at politics. That, again, is Reconsider. Check them out, guys. Other than that, thanks for stopping by. Remember, Be Fit is the best way to support this podcast, guys. You've been doing a great job of it, and I'm going to keep on plugging away because I've gotten married in May, and adulting is hard, and all the other stuff. So thanks very much for everything you've done so far, and keep on doing what you're doing, because you're doing it great. All right, so I'm not going to ramble too much, other than to say I'm still really excited for what I've got planned for the fifth anniversary of When Diplomacy Fails, but you're just going to have to wait and see until the middle of May of this year to see what I've got coming. Okay, so with all that out of the way, let's get down to the show. Thanks again for listening. are live. Yep. Welcome to our sixth episode of the Franco-Dutch War, episode 29.25. It is here that one of the historical infamies of this period will be covered as we try to unwrap and unravel and we'll get our heads around the mysteries, controversies and calamities of the 1670 Treaty of Dover, which bound Charles II to fight alongside Louis XIV against the Dutch and, perhaps even more infamously, pledged the British king to convert to Catholicism. 
Last time we enmeshed ourselves within Dutch politics, which was perhaps a good or bad thing depending on your opinion of it, but I have gotten some good feedback. Thanks in particular to Diedrich for his especially appreciated email. I'm so glad that a Dutch man doesn't think I'm massively messing up the history of his homeland. Thanks for stopping by, Diedrich, and I hope you stick around. I also hope I didn't butcher the pronunciation of your name. Right, so, we looked at Dutch politics and concluded our analysis of the Triple Alliance and how it all came about. Hopefully you understand what the Triple Alliance means and what it meant to Johan de Witt and why he felt he had to go along with it by now. I think I've spent enough time on it at this stage. A running theme of the Triple Alliance had been Charles's behaviour, though, and how his moves were never properly understood by historians or really appreciated by them for many years. This episode is similar to the previous ones, and in fact continues the running theme of the underestimated British king, historically sidelined for so long by his cousin Louis XIV and his nephew William of Orange. The Treaty of Dover was perhaps Charles's greatest stroke of genius, in that it brought him closer than ever to success against his Dutch enemy. Yet inevitably, it also represents the peak of the Restoration Era in a sense, and it is unquestionably the point of no return for British foreign policy. If Britain wasn't the bad guy or the heel, in wrestling terms, in this story before, see how you feel about Charles's sneakiness by the end of the episode. Here's hoping we actually get down to covering it all, because the entire period of history is so awash with incredible anecdotes, the aforementioned sneakiness and dramatic diplomacy, that I've been so looking forward to it and building towards it for some time now. Without any further ado then, apologies for the rambling, let's get down to it. I will now take you to September 1668, where a series of suspect communications were being conducted between two cousins. Envy is a weed that grows in all souls and climates, and is no less luxuriant in the country than in the court, is not confined to any rank of men or extent of fortune, but rages in the breasts of all degrees. Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon. contain perhaps the most pivotal events of Charles II's reign, because it is during these years, in government, in court politics and in foreign policy, that the greatest strides were made towards a new policy, and that new policy was conjoining Britain to the French in their war against the Dutch. In spring 1668, Charles was able to boast of a newly minted Triple Alliance, which he had signed ostensibly to bring pressure against Louis XIV in his invasion of the Spanish Netherlands. We have already examined the circumstances of Charles's sneaky orchestration of that agreement, but it shouldn't surprise you to learn that Charles continues his sneaky ways here. The Triple Alliance certainly became popular in London in the months after it was signed in spring 68, but to demonstrate the dire situation which greeted Charles, Immediately after Parliament convened, following the peace with the Dutch and the eviction of the Earl of Clarendon from the country in November 67, 
we hear from the historian Orr Hutton, who noted that upon the reassembly after a few months' recess in that month of 67, the House of Commons blamed this disaster, i.e. the recent war, upon mismanagement, not lack of resources. It did nothing to alleviate the Crown's subsequent problem of coping with an enormous war debt from a revenue which, for several years, had failed to yield enough to cover even regular expenditure. Charles's attempt to placate critics by making a scapegoat of his most prominent minister, the Earl of Clarendon, had only involved him in a fierce struggle in Parliament with the supporters of the aggrieved Earl. His remaining ministers were divided and frightened, while he had not an ally in Europe. The mood of despair was reflected in the absence of Christmas festivities at court. Thus the Dover Treaty was not the work of a government made aggressive by years of security and strength, but of one finding its way out of a most unpleasant predicament. The unpleasant predicament that Hudden refers to here was indeed a great test of Charles's character, as well as his regime's stability. Racked by war, fire, plague and debt, London was a gloomy place to be in by the time 1667 came to an end. Whatever our feelings about Charles as a ruler, we should be impressed by how he managed to turn the image of his country around, only two years later, as we'll see at the end of the episode. How did he do it, you might be wondering? Well, much of the success comes from the activities of his ministers, grouped into what historians would later term the cabal, but constituted of five distinct men who each brought something special to the table and, to be honest, didn't really like each other all that much. C stood for Clifford, or Thomas Clifford, who would later be the first Baron Clifford of Chudley, a veteran of various naval battles and a member of the Privy Council, which during this era held such an enormous position in matters of state. Historians have judged him as one of the least important members of the Cabal, and many have since criticised his affinity for seeking and accepting bribes for certain tasks, so we'll mostly leave him to the side for now. From the least important in my view to the most important, we next come to A, or the first A, for Arlington, or more specifically, Sir Henry Bennett, the first Earl of Arlington. It was Arlington who possessed the greatest influence over policy for the next four years or so, and it was he who was instrumental, whether it was through his seat on the Privy Council or through his contacts in the different foreign capitals, in crafting British foreign policy. This means, of course, that he is most responsible for what was to come in the Treaty of Dover, although as we'll see, it's not quite so simple to blame Arlington for what occurred. Married as he was to a Dutch noblewoman who could claim distant relation to the House of Orange through a series of illegitimate children, and hardened against France by his impressions of the Sun King, Arlington was the closest thing Britain was to have to a Prime Minister for the next few years. He was awash with as much talent and ability as he was with contradictions, and will certainly be coming back to him later. Historians have debated the presence of the next man in the cabal, Buckingham, more specifically George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, an individual who has hovered in and out of our story for the last few episodes, but who we first met when he jumped on Charles's carriage as he returned home in 1660. This playfulness reflected the fact that Buckingham had grown up with Charles and had been through literally everything with him. The pro to this was that Buckingham enjoyed a flexible relationship with the king, and Charles thus forgave him for most of the bad things he did. The con, well, the con was really the same as the pro. 
The problem was, it seemed to grant Buckingham a license to act out, simply because he knew of Charles and had grown up with Charles, and he did this on regular occasions. He even killed his opponent in a duel on one occasion. The scandal which arose from that affair was so great because the man Buckingham killed was actually the husband of the woman he had taken as a lover. So yeah, not, not all that nice. The story ignited British minds and passions, and Charles had to keep Buckingham out of sight for a time. But this was the worst it ever got. Buckingham's longevity thus made him a valuable asset to any group opposed to the official policy line. In other words, Ardington. On occasion, Buckingham was known to swing for and against Charles's policies, but Charles seemed to have had an ulterior motive for keeping him on. Buckingham absolutely detested Arlington, and the two rarely cooperated or even existed in the same room together, except for when duty called for it, as we'll see. Though Arlington was the man truly trusted with office, Buckingham did have a seat on the Privy Council. He just seemed more interested in messing around in his private life than actually doing governmental work. He is thus less important to us as a figure than Arlington, but he remains an important man of the ear despite this even just because he kept Arlington on his toes. The final two men of the cabal were first Lord Ashley, A for Ashley, more specifically Anthony Ashley Cooper, the first Earl of Shaftesbury, the Chancellor of the Exchequer for nearly a decade up to 1672, and a very important man for Charles since he controlled the money. The second man was Lauderdale, more specifically John Maitland, the first Duke of Lauderdale, Lauderdale was a Scot whose mission was to recreate Scotland as a citadel for Charles and hopefully pacify it in the process. He had Charles's full support in this and essentially ruled over Scotland for much of this time period. Ruthless, harsh and visibly rough at times, Lauderdale often shocked those he came in contact with, but he was far too useful in Scotland, considering the stranglehold he had over the country, for Charles to ever dream about replacing him, at least not yet. These five men of varying influence, with the standouts being Arlington and Buckingham, not only did not get on, but often did not even wield the kind of power history seems to suggest. With the exception of Arlington, Buckingham, and maybe Lauderdale at a stretch, the other two men could be replaced with other courtiers or members of the Privy Council history has since forgotten, but that doesn't mean the group itself should be discarded as a useless historical device. If anything, it serves to remind us, in the age of absolutism that Louis XIV was enjoying, that normal men in important positions could also make incredible differences to the future of their country, just as surely as a monarch could. In our case, because of his impact on foreign policy, we are going to focus mostly on Arlington in this episode, as we untangle his role in the Treaty of Dover. Filling the void left by Clarendon, who would by now, skirted off to France, Arlington sought to hoard a great deal of that man's powers, and mostly stepped into the vague position of Keeper of the Privy Purse, as well as Postmaster General. But his unofficial position as the Don of Foreign Affairs is more important in terms of the legacy it left behind. The historian Morris D. Lee, writing in the 1960s on the treaty, noted the surprising similarities between King Charles II and Arlington, the minister, which may explain why both men appeared so close at this point in time. It's a bit of a long extract, but it really does introduce us and explain to us the ins and outs of the situation. So let's go. Arlington resembled King Charles in more ways than one. 
In fact, his mental processes were very much the same as Charles's, which may account for their compatibility, and also for Arlington's lack of success as foreign minister. In bridge players' terms, there was duplication of values here. Both men had a policy. What the king wanted was a close alliance with France, which would help him to achieve his domestic political goal of virtual independence of Parliament. Both men were exceedingly fertile in immediate expedience. Both were very good negotiators, being patient, courteous, well-informed, and both had a good eye to character. Both men were outwardly very accommodating. They appeared always to be open to persuasion and reasoned argument. Charles often gave the impression of indifference to the issue. But underneath their affable exteriors, both could be exceedingly tenacious once they had made up their minds. They could then be deflected only by an open and obvious threat. In Charles's case, to his throne. In Arlington's, to his political position or to the domestic tranquillity of the state. Both men were singularly unable to formulate general lines of action to achieve their political goals, and they were both lacking in foresight. Neither one of them was able to see very far ahead, to calculate what the eventual result of any particular political move was going to be. It was this lack of foresight which led to the great blunder of Charles's reign, the Treaty of Dover. The degree of Arlington's responsibility for this treaty is worth trying to assess, because it is on the ground of his adoption of the policy of alliance with France, a policy in which he did not believe, that Arlington has been frequently criticised. Thus, Morris Lee sets us up well for this episode. Was Arlington to blame for the Treaty of Dover? Was Charles or Louis to blame? Was it really such a naughty deal? In a way, the treaty was a long time coming. If you remember from the examination of the Triple Alliance, Charles had made great efforts to court Louis in the past. When these efforts had failed, he then treated with the Dutch. Writing much higher than he had any right to by mid-1668, Charles was confident enough that this time Louis would come to him first, and he was right. Singed over his experiences in the War of Devolution, and personally insulted at the perfidious Dutch for agreeing to secret articles directed against him, Louis pursued his cousin Charles with a distinct diplomatic vengeance as summer turned to autumn in 1668. As Orr Hutton noted though, after having waited all this time for his cousin to come knocking, Charles wasn't about to let Louis have him for nothing. It is not surprising that Louis believed that he could detach Charles from such a ramshackle partnership which was the Triple Alliance, and that four months after the Treaty of La Chapelle, he offered him the offensive alliance he had requested in the previous winter, in return for England's withdrawal from its new commitments. But he was wrong. Charles spoke in honeyed tones of his desire for a closer union, but insisted as a prerequisite upon France's abandonment of certain policies which he observed, quite correctly, to be alarming his subjects. These included an increase in the French navy and the imposition of tariffs designed to foster native manufacturers. At the same time, the English government worked hard to bolster the Triple Alliance, expressing a readiness to admit other Protestant states to it and proposing that England and the United Provinces pay Sweden part of the money owed by Spain. It seems impossible to argue that Charles's consistent aim was an alliance with Louis in vengeance upon the Dutch. Rather, in 1668 his regime was trying to strengthen itself all round, using its position to win gratitude among its new allies, while gaining concessions from France. So, 
What we can gather from that is, Charles was more than certain that he would sometime soon engage with France for two major reasons. The first is the more obvious. He saw Louis as his major ally and saw the Dutch as his natural enemy, both in economic and strategic terms, even if some of his advisors, or most of his advisors, depending on the mood, didn't always agree with him or his views on the French or Dutch. After fighting the Dutch in two bitter wars, Charles was eager to avenge recent losses and regain his kingdom's prestige. The second reason is perhaps less apparent on the surface, but it does make sense if we consider the history of Charles's reign up to this point. One thing that characterises the Treaty of Dover is its secrecy, and the fact that Parliament knew virtually nothing about it until the last moment. This is because a great motivating factor behind Charles's actions was his desire to be free of Parliament, or at least cut some of the strings which bound him to behave in a certain way, and above all, beg its members for money, which they proved so reluctant to give, and had proved so reluctant to give in the past. Charles was frankly sick of asking for it, and wished to find ways to acquire the fund through his own efforts, which efforts would be more efficient than through an arrangement made with one's fellow monarch. Louis would supply the coin if Charles would join him, and thus the crux of the Treaty of Dover comes into being, an agreement founded on strategic interest, as much as it was founded on Charles's own perceptions of what a king should be allowed to do. Understanding this means that it shouldn't surprise us to see Charles looking for a deal with Louis even while he had the Triple Alliance to point to as evidence for his diplomatic success. The Triple Alliance was never meant to be anything but a consolation prize, and Charles wanted the real deal, despite his playing hardball. His frustrations with Parliament are reflected in the fact that that institution was prorogued from May 1668 to October 69, during which time the Privy Council became supreme. This transition may seem strange, considering how much Charles reputedly hated the Privy Council and its control over affairs during Clarendon's era, but Clarendon was long gone by May 68, and though many feared his return, the Privy Council remained vital because it was now filled with people that Charles could get on with. This group of 10 or so individuals, which... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Included the cabal and overlapped with it were the true controllers of government by this stage, but only a select few were ever wise to the Treaty of Dover and what it meant for Britain and its king. In August 1668, a new French ambassador arrived in London. He was the younger brother of Jean-Baptiste Colbert, the French Minister for Finances, and he would play a pivotal role over the next few years in gearing Britain towards a certain policy. Will you welcome, please, Charles Colbert. So great, another Charles. Initially, despite the pedigree he enjoyed and the influential position his brother held in France, Charlie Colbert was given the cold shoulder by Charles, who didn't trust him and who became even more determined to pursue a closer agreement with his cousin. Even though the new posting proved that France was trying to exert a more active policy in Britain, and that the official government line desired closer union, Charles II wasn't apparently comfortable with using an official government appointee and preferred instead to use his own family. Charles was well served in trying to use his family members because his sister was of course married to the French king's brother, Philip. This meant that Louis would be bound to see the letters sent between them, or that, at least, Charles's sister Henrietta, referred to as Minette, would be up to date with the latest in French politics. Thus began the curious tale of sibling communiques. As in December 1668 a correspondence began with Minette that moved ever more gradually towards the question of an alliance with France. This was put into motion by Louis, as he upped the ante in November 68 by offering Charles the same terms he had asked for in 67, when Louis had refused him, and Charles went for the Triple Alliance instead, as we saw. It demonstrated how much things had changed in the space of a year. By orchestrating the Triple Alliance, Charles proved his value and ability, and forced Louis to take notice. Again, though, while he certainly would have appreciated how much things had changed, Charles still played hard to get, and politely expressed his desire for a closer union with additional requests that stressed the alarm of the French people, who were aware of Louis's plans to increase the power of the French navy. Charles proposed a commercial treaty to soothe arguments on levies which had raged since the 1650s between Britain and France, since in his words, I must enter first upon those matters which will render the rest more plausible here, for you know that the thing which is nearest to the heart of the nation is trade, and all that belongs to it. He also suggested a vague treaty of friendship to be developed at a later date. As 1669 dawned, it was evident that both monarchs wanted to deal, and that both had to continue to dance. This dance involved the unwilling or unaware partners of Spain and the Dutch, both of whom were essentially to be pawns of the game that the two cousins were about to play, just as Charles had always envisioned. 
Charles wrote to Minette in January 1669, fully aware that Louis would see the letters, to assure her of the desire I have to enter into a personal relationship with him, Louis Fourteenth, and to unite our interests so, in the future, as there may never be any jealousies between us. The only thing which can give any impediment to what we both desire is the matter of the sea, which is so essential a point to us here as a union upon any other security can never be so lasting. Charles was emphatic about the point that all these negotiations should remain a secret, lest the truth about his dealings with Catholic France and the betrayal of the Triple Alliance, which was popular in Parliament, may have returned to my prejudice. By that he meant the storm which would arise from the sensitive but prorogued MPs who knew full well that Charles had neither the authority nor the support of those men to negotiate the clauses he did. To disguise the fact that Louis and Charles were moving ever closer, Charles maintained that any deal would have to be secret for the Triple Alliance to remain intact. With that treaty already in place, nobody would suspect at home or abroad that Britain was about to move against its ally. Louis was already making 1669 a very productive year, as Orr Hutton noted. Two fresh initiatives were launched in early 1669. One was a French attempt to do a deal with the United Provinces, which provoked a Dutch proposal to divide the Spanish Netherlands into independent cantons on the Swiss model. This would serve Dutch interests admirably, but give nothing to the English, while it would automatically dissolve the Triple Alliance and leave England isolated again. The other approach was by Charles to Louis, and carried to France in March. Charles now offered Louis a defensive and offensive alliance, provided that he received a substantial aid in men, money and ships in the case of war, and that the Triple Alliance was preserved and that Louis suspended his naval programme. Charles talked frankly and consistently with his sister Manette, and historians have since come to see their communications as a kind of unofficial channel between the two monarchs. As though poking a stick at Louis for his previous coldness, Charles had said, in reference to the Triple Alliance and Britain's participation within it, that Finding my propositions to France receive so cold an answer, which in effect was as good as a refusal, I thought I had no other way but to secure this, the Triple Alliance, myself. The warning was explicit enough. Shunned by his cousin and unable to secure the agreement that he truly wanted, Charles had been chastened and forced to look elsewhere. It was up to Louis to ensure that such an outcome did not occur again. Yet we would be remiss if we didn't mention the other infamous article of the winding correspondence. In addition to the developing agreements for monetary and material aid in January 69, as Orr Hutton noted, Charles made what was to become the notorious offer to declare himself a Catholic if Louis gave him £200,000 which to secure his position. This, in context, appears to be an attempt by the English to achieve complete security and open options by being secretly allied to France and formally allied to its prospective opponents. Charles's expression of interest in Catholicism could well have been the bait that would induce Louis to take a serious interest in such a proposal. Indeed, Orhutton's comments about Charles's pragmatism reveal a lot to us here. For generations, historians were so taken by the revelations implicit in the government papers released in the early 1800s that it was taken for granted that Charles intended to convert, 
and that he merely awaited Louis, the all-powerful Louis, and his agents in order to effect it. Yet, from about the 1960s onwards, historians took a different approach and considered the offer made by Charles in light of a number of factors. First, Charles had always been familiar with Catholicism, and while he may have been sympathetic towards that religious persuasion and was reported to have taken Catholic Mass on his deathbed, this does not outwardly signal a determination to convert in itself. Charles's pragmatic brain understood that Louis would appreciate this clause and that it would draw him in further than a simple familial appeal would have. Whether he was correct in this has also been debated. The second point is that Charles's intention to convert and the evidence which historians have traditionally used to back that intention up is full of holes. For many years, James, the Duke of York, and his memoirs sufficed as the evidence, wherein an entry in late January 69 has Charles II exclaiming, with tears in his eyes, how he would like to rule as a Catholic in Britain but feared the consequences. These memoirs were in fact constructed by aides to James many years after his own death, and so their authenticity is suspicious at best. The supposed witnesses at this private meeting, where the tears were shed, were mostly Catholics themselves, so an element of bias is also present on top of that. Finally, we should also add that if the deathbed conversion story is true, then it proved Charles's pragmatism in of itself. The whole reason he would never convert was that he was meant to be the head of the Church of England. He couldn't hold this post if he was a Catholic. Therefore, he couldn't be the King of Britain, as his brother James would infamously discover. So if Charles's own pragmatism and the constitution of his kingdom prevented his conversion, how do we judge his offer to Louis to convert? Could it still have been genuine? It may have been, there's no point in outwardly saying that it wasn't, but it is handy to note, as historians do, the money clauses within the conversion pledge. Charles was a broke king leading an indebted kingdom, and regular subsidies were what he needed most. Louis, despite his own kingdom's horrific debts, which the aforementioned Jean-Baptiste Colbert would tear his hair out trying to ease, was fully willing to provide these subsidies if it meant that Charles would aid him in a war against his Dutch rival. Adding the conversion clause in meant that Louis would provide him with more money, while it also meant that a war would not begin with the Dutch until Charles converted. On top of all that was the incredible clause which stated that Louis would begin paying Charles six months from when the agreement was concluded either way. Did Charles simply want to take Louis's money, or was he in fact genuine? The only clue we have, in fact the one guiding principle which betrayed so much of Charles's other rational policies, was the Stuart King's hatred of the Dutch. Because he despised the Dutch and so wanted to avenge the dishonour of the Medway in July of 67, I believe he would have eventually joined his country to Louis's either way. The converging clause may have been a distraction, or a way to pull more money out of France, or to pick his own time for the actual war, but either way, war was surely the end goal of the two cousins' negotiations. Due to the haphazard way which the negotiations had rumbled on, there was nothing but a vague understanding by spring 69 as to where these negotiations would end up. It is safe to say that both kings assumed it would be war against the Dutch, but it seemed they weren't quite ready to flatly state this aim just yet. 
In the meantime, Charles continued to make a show of maintaining what he already built up in the public eye. He showed great interest in a divorce case which rocked the nation as one peer sought to get his marriage ended through the courts. Rumour and gossip stipulated that Charles would seek to use the outcome of this court case to his advantage and divorce his apparently barren wife. This would increase the chances of his having children and therefore heirs with a new wife which would then estrange him from his brother James who was his assumed heir up to this point. The cooling of the brotherly relationship meant that Buckingham was brought in to stir up trouble against the Duke of York's friends, a spectacle which virtually ensured that nobody took the time to investigate what Charles may have been doing with his French relatives behind closed doors. If Charles did operate in the open, it was only to emphasise the strides he was making with the Triple Alliance, which of course poured still more fuel on the false fire which was the friendship with the Dutch Republic, as Orhutten notes. Charles's government continued working to ensure that the Triple Alliance, which had enhanced England's value in French as in all other eyes, was strengthened. During 1669 also, English diplomats were set to work feverishly all over Europe to increase their country's influence and prestige, talking to German Protestant princes about alliances, carrying the garter to the Elector of Saxony, acting as peacemakers between the Scandinavian powers, and negotiating treaties with Savoy to aid English commerce and with Denmark to provide for cooperation against respective enemies. Charles ordered 40 warships to parade English waters in the summer. All of this increased activity may have represented growing confidence and ambition, or a feverish search for greater security, or elements of both. The Triple Alliance certainly continued to exhibit weaknesses. The Anglo-Dutch disputes over Suriname and tropical trade proved as intractable as before, and involved Charles's government in much hard work and much apparently genuine frustration. A breakthrough in negotiations was made with Louis in March of 69, as Minette made it plain that she planned to visit her brother in London in December of 69. It would be the first time she'd seen him in over a decade, and both were evidently eager to meet, understandably, since they were siblings. Minette because of her domineering husband that she just wanted to get away from, and Charles because he genuinely missed his much-loved sister. In the event, Minette discovered she was pregnant only a few weeks after negotiating the trip, and thus she had to postpone to the following year, but Charles had by now already drafted up his true demands. In March, he sent these terms to Louis, but the negotiations stalled for nearly six months because Charles was unwilling to have the treaty based upon the assumption that a war with the Dutch would have to activate it. Charles, after all, wanted money now. So after months of dancing around the issue, and of more activity in Europe with his diplomats, by autumn 1669 it seemed that Charles had finally decided what his price would be for attacking the Dutch by Louis' side, and the French king was going to want to hear what he had to say. Not only was Charles willing to accept that the treaty would now revolve around a declaration of war on the Dutch, but Charles injected into the agreement a huge amount of stipulations of his own, some of which revealed his own hesitation to establish France without any counterweights. In spite of whatever hesitations he may have held, though, in December 69, Charles was at last prepared to state the conditions upon which he would attack the Dutch. In terms that the historian Jenny Oglo has described as staggering, 
Charles laid the following conditions out, which Louis would have to fulfil if he wanted to join his cousin in a war against the Dutch. First of all, Louis would have to fulfil a down payment of £1 million before any fighting began, and once the treaty was paid, £600 grand would be paid per year until the war ended. England was to be ceded two Dutch islands and a port, as part of the post-war treaty, from which it could dominate the seaborne trade of the Netherlands and eliminate its main commercial rival in the process. To ensure the existence of English influence within the northern part of the region for the foreseeable future, Charles's nephew, William, the Prince of Orange, was to be gratified with land or money or whatever it took and installed as a de facto British puppet. Louis was required to preserve the Treaty of A La Chapelle, which had ended the War of Devolution, which also meant preserving the Triple Alliance, which really was a bizarre request considering what Charles was about to do, but the clause was presumably left in in order to place England in the role of principal protector of Spain, and perhaps even retain Spain as a counterweight to France or whoever else tried to stir up trouble. If Louis tried at any point to claim all or part of the Spanish realms, England was to receive Ostend to strengthen its hold on the Channel, Menorca in the Mediterranean to assist it in domineering the Western Mediterranean, and the entire vast Spanish overseas empire, with French aid, of course, to secure it. As if this was not enough to deter Louis from further ambitious ventures, since all these were really just Charles's security policies, the Dutch war was not to take place until after the declaration of Catholicism had been made. The date of this was left undetermined, but Louis was to pay the 200 grand for it within six months of the treaty either way. Even while the treating proceeded, the English wished themselves and the Swedes to be recognised by Louis as sole arbitrators in disputes between the French and Spanish, which may have arised from the Treaty of A La Chapelle. The French court was understandably taken aback by these proposals even more so than Charles's original promise to convert earlier in the year, which Minette almost certainly divulged. Once he recovered his composure, Louis haggled for some benefits for France. The number of French ships Louis would have to contribute were lowered, and he would join his ships to the British, meaning that Charles theoretically would need less money to defend his kingdom. They were eventually to set on the subsidy of 230,000 per annum rather than 600. Charles would also ship over 4,000 infantry to join the French army. The proposal to divide the Spanish Empire, both in America and in Europe, was dropped in exchange for a promise by Louis not to attack Spain. The money given to assist Charles's profession of Catholicism was fixed at 160,000 rather than 200,000. Apart from these changes, though, the English got precisely what they had asked for, including the ability to postpone the war indefinitely, as it had in theory to follow a religious change for which Charles alone would determine the time. The process of agreement required five months, during which both parties prepared alternative policies for other European powers. Louis seems to have proposed to Spain that France could acquire the Spanish Netherlands through an exchange of territory in Europe or elsewhere, while England conceded the Spanish demand for a formal concert of forces by the Triple Alliance and negotiated a treaty with Spain to stop piracy in the Caribbean. 
The knowledge that his prospective ally possessed additional options was probably a powerful element in bringing the respective monarchs to sign the treaty. Certainly, it is one of the key ingredients of mutually effective diplomacy. The less options one has, the less advantageous a deal they can then access. So, just as Parliament was meeting again in October 69 after its 18-month hiatus, Charles was putting the finishing touches on a treaty which only he and very few confidants knew the truth about. In time, a number of changes would be applied to this Treaty of Dover. But as 1670 dawned, and news of Manette's visit began to excite the public, Charles could perhaps feel confident for the first time in a long time that he had negotiated his way to a victory. The shame of the Medway would soon be nothing but a hazy memory once the two cousins joined forces on the world stage. Next time, we examine the background efforts made by the Earl of Arlington, a man who we've had less time to investigate than I would have liked in this episode, but whose importance will become apparent in time. It was Arlington who drafted the Treaty of Dover, Arlington who did most of the speaking, and Arlington who tied Britain's fortunes to the Sun King. It was Arlington, in Charles's mind, who made it possible for his sister to return home. Just as his subjects had done for him a decade earlier, Charles waited eagerly in Dover for the arrival of a royal steward. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.